after I get to say uh, happy Mother's Day to my beautiful wife, my mother-in-law who's here, and my mom who usually watches online. So happy Mother's Day, mom. Uh, love you guys. And uh, that, was, that was great. You guys like the game that Colton led there? Um, I, have a, I have a sneaking suspicion that even though the McDougal uh, clan lost, uh, yeah, that was, they deserved to lose because I think they cheated. <laughs> As, can, I get, can I get an honest confession from the McDougal clan? Was there, was there any cheaters there on the McDougal side? Huh? No cheaters. no cheaters? I think even two of our worship leaders might have been the cheaters. <laughs> two, you guys were led, you, you were led in worship this morning by a few cheaters. What's that? Uh, never mind. You can harass them later. Um, anyways, I'm glad the Browns won. Woohoo. Uh, Mother's Day, it's, uh, you know, when I woke up this morning thinking about the sermon I was going to give in Mother's Day, it's, um, I felt really bad. This is a day of celebration, uh, and, uh, and we, so we want to honor moms. Uh, it's also a day where I'm going to talk about money. Um, and so I'm like, Mother's Day and money and tithing, how did these two end up on the same day? Uh, so I just acknowledge the awkwardness of that right off the bat. And so moms, I love you, I honor you. Um, but this morning, I'm also going to challenge you and challenge us and our understanding of money and giving. And we're in the series uh, looking through Nehemiah, and the series is called The Heart of Generosity. And so we're, we're thinking about the theme of generosity through the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was an official under King Artaxerxes. He was, uh, a, he was an Israelite. Uh, who was under the king, under Babylonian rule. And uh, his heart was broken for a city of Jerusalem whose walls had been broken. And right at the beginning of the, the story, you'll see that Nehemiah goes to the king and makes a bold ask. This king who had oppressed his people, he comes before the king and says, uh, help me uh, support, help me b- rebuild the walls in my city. My heart's broken for my city. And you are the only one that can actually help. You are the king. You are the, you are the gate of generosity. And unless you're generous, then I can't be generous. Unless you're generous, I can't do what I feel like God's calling me to do. And the king uh, agreed and uh, allowed Nehemiah to go, allowed Nehemiah to take people, allowed Nehemiah to have resources to go and build the wall uh, for the city which he loved. And so this morning, I, I begin with a bold ask. I, I begin uh, kind of taking Nehemiah's lead and acknowledging that um, for me, it's not about asking a king, but it's actually, it's, it's about making the ask to those who have uh, control over their own stuff and their own finances. And my ask this morning is that we would reconsider and pray about what God would have us Uh, give to his ministry, specifically here at SunWest. And so on Mother's Day, this is a a very much an in-house message, and I know that we have guests in the room this morning. Um, And I just want to say, if you're a guest here, 
or you're checking things out, or you're a seeker and you're wondering about God and you're here to journey with us, we welcome you here. Um, My specific challenge this morning is going to be to those who call church, uh, Sunwester Church home, uh, to those who are covenant community members, uh, or uh, even if you're not a covenant community member, if this is where you regularly worship and do community, uh, my ask is to you uh, specifically. I mean, I've used the analogy before. Uh, I'm a coach. I'm a basketball coach. And uh, when, when we have tryouts, you know, we had, you know, 40 plus uh, kids come to tryouts this year. And at the end of the day, we had, to, we had to pick a team. But once we picked a team, or you have a conversation with your team and you, you say, um, are you in? Are you committed to this team? And, and they say yes. And as soon as they say yes, we actually enter into uh, almost like this covenant relationship. Do you know what that means to be on the same team? It means that uh, you are willing to be coached. You're willing to be challenged. You're willing to be held accountable uh, because we actually have a goal as a team. We have a we have something we want to accomplish together. And the only way we actually get to accomplish that together is if we choose uh, to hold each other accountable and move in the same direction. And so, so there's this mutual accountability that happens in, in a team environment, and you would know that if you've been on a team. Uh, in a similar way, I, I would say that covenant community, church community, uh, is, a, is a similar type of mindset, that we have a goal together, that we... Uh, have something that we believe God wants to accomplish in us and through us. And that's a bit of what Mark chatted about last week when he talked about uh, the vision specifically here at Sun West. And in Nehemiah 10, you see this, you see this rallying of a team. You see this, this coming together, this holding one another accountable, urging, encouraging one another to, to move forward in the way that God's calling them to move forward. And so, so Nehemiah... Uh, made the bold ask, and, and the king said yes, and that actually allowed them uh, to do something together uh, when that yes was, was given to Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah takes him and his crew, and they go, uh, they go to Jerusalem, they rebuild the walls, and uh, after the wall was rebuilt, you know, they come together, uh, and, uh, and we, we read this in... Nehemiah chapter 10. It says, Then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land, in order to obey the law of God, together with their wives, sons, and daughters, and all who were old enough to understand, joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses, they solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land and not to let our sons marry their daughters. Just a bit of a background there. Um, other, other people uh, had other gods, and so marrying uh, within other nations, uh, the intermarriage actually um, pulled Israel away from worshiping and following their god. We also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or holy grain to be sold on the Sabbath or any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. 
Every seventh year, we let our land rest and will cancel all debts owed to us. In addition, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce of silver for the care of the temple of our God. This will provide for the bread of the presence, for the regular grain offerings and the burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, the new moon celebrations, and the annual festivals. So these are all activities that were kind of done uh, by, the, by the temple people. Uh, for the holy offerings and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. I will provide for everything necessary for the work of the temple of our God. We have cast sacred lots to determine when at regular times each year, each year the families of the priests, Levites, and so the Levites were a specific tribe within Israel. Um, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests, if that makes sense. But the priests in Israel came from the tribe of the Levites, and the common people should bring wood to God's temple to be burned on the altar of the Lord our God as is written in the law. We promise to bring the first part of every harvest to the Lord's temple year after year, whether it be a crop from the soil or from our fruit trees. We agree to give our God our oldest sons and the firstborn of all our herds and flocks as prescribed in the law. And so when it says give our oldest sons, that was for service uh, in the temple. Uh, service to God specifically. We will present them uh, to the priests who minister in the temple of our God. We will store the produce in the storerooms of the temple of our God. We will bring the best of our flour and other grain offerings, the best of our fruit, and the best of our new wine and olive oil. Can you guys say the best? The best. Say the first. These are, these are themes that you'll read in, in Nehemiah 10 here. And we promise to bring to the Levites a tenth of everything our land produces, uh, a tenth meaning a tithe. In some translations it says a tithe. We'll bring a tithe of everything our land produces for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our rural towns. A priest, a descendant of Aaron, will be with the Levites as they receive these tithes. And a tenth of all that is collected as tithes will be delivered by the Levites to the temple of our God and placed into the storerooms. The people and the Levites must bring these offerings of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms and place them in the sacred containers near the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers. We promise together not to neglect the temple of our God. And so there was like this, this covenant re renewal at the end of this that we promise together, we're in a team together, not to neglect the temple of our God, not to neglect what God is calling us to do together. A couple of things I just want to point out. Uh, we're, we're tapping into the theme of stewardship this morning. And stewardship is really an understanding in, for those Christ followers uh, that what we have is not ours. That everything we have has actually been given to us. Everything that you have, every, all the money you have, all the stuff that you have has actually been given to you on loan to steward. It's God's stuff that he's given to us. And we steward three things, uh, three primary things, and you actually see them in Nehemiah 10. We steward time. So when it was talking about Sabbath, you know, the, you know, the one day a week, uh, the Sabbath year, once every seven years, right? We, we prioritize our time. We steward our time. We understand this is a gift that God has given us. And so we prioritize him first in our time. That shows up in the understanding of Sabbath. Our talent, the things that your capacity, 
your giftedness, the things that you're able to do. Nehemiah was a man of great talent, of great leadership, and he understood that God actually gave him his position under the king. He gave him his gifts of leadership as something to be stewarded. It was given to him by God. It wasn't his. And our treasure, our money, our stuff. And the book of Nehemiah is full of examples of stewardship, of radical generosity. And we see here this community expression that says, hey, we want to steward what God has given us in our time and our talent and our treasure. And so they bind themselves with a curse and an oath to obey the Mosaic commands, regulations, decrees. That, that was the law that Moses gave at Mount Sinai. No marrying in other tribes, no business deals on the Sabbath, no working the land every seventh year. You know, God understood that the, the land itself even needed rest. You know, that's even a good word uh, for us today, uh, as we continue to take, take, and take from, from the land, that God instituted right in the very beginning that, that land actually needs rest. Cancel all debts every seventh year. Each family would bring wood to the, to the temple for use. The first fruits of the crops and the trees. So you don't, you don't take the crops and the trees after, you, after the whole harvest and you realize what you have left. You, you bring the first fruits, the firstborn son, the first ground meal, grain offerings, fruit, wine, olive oil. And so we see this generosity to slaves, to the land, to the Levites, to God, the stewardship of time, talent, and treasure. And we come to this word tithe right there in the middle of that passage. And, and tithe has become this dirty word. And anybody cringe when they hear the word tithe? Come on, let's get some honest people in the room this morning. Tithe, thank you, Lucas. You know, Lucas, when I was your age, uh, we passed the offering plate in our church. You know, at SunWest, we don't, we don't pass a plate on Sunday mornings. That's, we, leave it in, we leave it in the hall. Um, but back in the day, we would actually, it, it wasn't even a plate. It was this bucket. Uh, it was a plastic bucket. And so the, the ushers would come down the aisles, and they would pass it down the aisles. Uh, and people would put their change in, their bills in. And when it came, when it came by me, um, I would hit the bottom of the bucket. Because if there's change in there, you, you know the sound when, when people drop the change in, it like makes that sound of money dropping? And so I'd hit the bottom of the bucket, and then everybody would think, oh, that's a nice boy right there. He, he gave his tithes this morning. <laughs> the problem, though, the problem is if only bills went in there, it would come by, and you'd hit the bottom, and it would just make this hollow sound and everybody would look and be like, what was that? Uh, so you got found out too. So you had to make sure there was actually change in there that when you hit it, it made the sound of, made the sound of change. But even as a young boy, I realized like, uh, I don't like this idea of tithing. This idea of, of having to give on a Sunday. But I want to talk about the tithe very quick. It means a tenth. That's what the word means. And it means ten. 10% at your first opportunity. So he, even here in the, in the passage, you recognize when it's talking about tithe, it's not just talking about money, but it's talking about, you know, you know cattle and fruit and other things like you tithe that, that 
Um, but it was first opportunity. And so for those that were traveling a long ways to go to the temple, they would actually have to uh, sell the cattle or the crop or something in order to uh, get it in uh, the currency of funds so they could get to the temple as, as quickly as they can. So uh, it, it was a tie that first opportunity and it symbolizes God's ownership of everything. That, uh, that, was, in, that was clear from the, from the beginning, as we'll see in a second. Uh, it's, it's off the top. It's first fruits. It's not, it's not leftovers. You know, I think of when we're in Mexico. Um, we, we do a Mexico trip every year. And at the, at the end of the Mexico trip, we have the opportunity to give... Uh, to the Mexican people at the end of the week. Anything that you want to leave there for them, right? You guys have done this? Some of you guys here, right? Uh, when I used to youth pastor, uh, it, we noticed a common thing that would happen. You know, we go to this donation pile, and it was full of dirty, greasy jeans that had holes in them, uh, people's underwear that they wore all week, uh, you know, their work shirts that they'd sweated out and they used to be white, but now they're yellow. And, and it was like, here, this is what we want to give in our generosity to the Mexican people here. And I'd ask, was that actually generosity or was it convenience? Was it generosity or, or just saying, at the end of your week, you look at your bag and you're like, I think I could do without this. So I'll leave, I'll leave this for them. This, this is a radically different idea than first fruits or tithe, 10% of first opportunity saying that uh, I get, or the best, which we read over, and over again, we give God the best. Uh, that at the end of the week, I, you know, I look at my shoes or my jeans and instead of looking at the ones with holes in it or the, the shirt that's stained, I say, what's my best shirt? Where are my best jeans? And how come we're not leaving those uh, behind to, to donate in our generosity? It speaks a little bit of the human heart that, that we want to save the best for us and give leftovers um, after that. Another thing about tithe, that tithing predates the Mosaic law. So it talks about the Mosaic law here. Uh, and sometimes we think, well, you know, that was the law of Moses. I'll talk a little bit in a second about the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and so that's changed. But there's actually universal principles in Scripture uh, that don't change. And if you, go in, if you look in Genesis 14, verse 20, or Genesis 28, 22, you'll see that the idea of tithe was there from the very beginning of the covenant uh, that God had with Abraham. Abraham begins the practice of tithe. Even before Moses, even before the law. The tithe has been practiced throughout church history. Uh, the tithe is not something to be controlled uh, so it's, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'm going to come back to that comment in a second. It, it's, it's not about what you want and how you want to spend the 10%. The tithe goes to the Levites, the people that are working in the temple. But it's important to note that the Levites also tithe. I don't know if you guys saw that in the passage there in verse 37. Uh, it says, we promised to bring to the Levites a tenth of everything the land produces, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the rural towns. A priest, a descendant of Aaron, 
will be with the Levites as they receive these tithes. And a tenth of all that is collected as tithes will be delivered by the Levites to the temple of our God and placed in the storeroom. So, uh, so it's not just like the, the Levites got all the tithes. The Levites themselves actually had to tithe. Uh, I, I, as a pastor, tithe. The Levites weren't expecting anything from the Jewish people that they weren't actually expecting from themselves. And so some people say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Uh, and I would say you don't want to use the New Testament as your, as your bedrock for generosity. You, you don't know what you're asking for. Because if you read the New Testament, the tithe is assumed. Uh, and the Christian community comes and actually gives everything. And then as a community, they decide, how are we going to use everything? And so uh, I think that communicates the heart of God of how we actually come together and bring our resource together and say, what, what can we do together? And even the idea of tithe is almost like a foundational principle that is challenging for us today. So, so we could jump to New Testament if you want, um, but let's, let's do ourselves a favor and just stick, stick with, with that Old Testament principle for a second. Is that okay? <laughs> So at SunWest, uh, I talked about the, our covenant community. Uh, we have 15 covenant community giving units presently uh, that are not giving anything. 15 covenant community giving units, people that said, this is our team, we're in, uh, that actually aren't giving anything. We have uh, 50% of people giving 80% of the budget, which actually, um, just as a note of encouragement, um, if we want to play the comparison game, that's better than typical church stats. So Fish Creek Camp is a great job because um, typically you have 20% of the people that are giving 80% of the budget. That would be an average stat. Uh, but we actually have 50% of people attending, providing 80% of the budget. So that's great. Um, however, we notice that uh, the tithe is actually very uh, inconsistent. For example, when there's a Mexico trip, like, uh, or when there's a missions trip, like the Mexico trip, I'll use as the most recent example, um, the giving at SunWest actually went way down. And then when Mexico trip was over, uh, now people are giving again. And so there's nothing wrong with putting money towards Mexico trip or missions trip, um, but that's a bit why the Bible differentiates between the offering and tithing, uh, because uh, an offering is generosity at your own discretion. A tithe is uh, something that you give because you are choosing not to be in control of. And there's a bit of a misunderstanding that, that we think, well, with I'll take my 10%. I want to be generous with 10%, and I'm going to choose what I do with it. It actually misses the heart of the tithe that says um, it's a practice. It's a heart check of saying, I'm not in control of my own money. So let me pause and just make a couple of statements here that I didn't get into pastoral ministry to make money. Um, I know it seems a little disingenuous that as a pastor, I'm up here talking about money. 
Uh, I didn't get into this to make money. I don't get paid commission. So if, if all of you guys after the sermon said, hey, I'm going to start like just throw, writing checks and uh, you know, I'm not going to show up next week with a new vehicle in the parking lot. Or if I do, it's coincidental. <laughs> so I don't get paid commission. Uh, the, the more we actually are generous as a community, the more it frees up ourselves to do what God's calling us to do as a community. The more generous we are, the more ministry there is. Controlling the tithe misses the point. So I just talked a little bit about the Mexico piece. Um, if we're unwilling to give at our church, it shows either two things, that the individual's trust isn't in God or the church that he's placed them in, because God calls every Christ follower to actually be a part uh, of a community, or the individual is attending an untrustworthy church and should consider finding a new one. That's a hard thing for me to say. Um, hopefully there's people here next week, but uh, if you're here and you're like, I don't feel like I can actually give here, that's a problem. It's a problem. And so the tithe is actually a way of saying, I am actually submitting to God with my money. I'm giving up the right to be king, to be control of my own money. So, Nehemiah 9.38 says this. So this is before the section I just read. The people responded, in view of all of this, we are making a solemn promise and putting in writing on the sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. So they, they came together and said, we're going to, in view of all of what just happened, we're going to make this covenant together. And so if you're online, I hope you've stuck with me to this point. If you're here live, uh, I hope you stay with me uh, because Nehemiah 10 needs Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 10 needs Nehemiah 9. And so when, when, ne when it says in Nehemiah 9.38, in view of all of this, what is it referring to? Just summarize a couple of comments here. If you read through Nehemiah 9, the people come together uh, right after the law is read, after their scriptures are read, and they pray together. And they're praying to God, and it says, You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth. Uh, it goes on and says, You are the Lord who chose Abraham and who, who brought him and who created a covenant with him. When he had proved himself faithful, you made, a, you made this covenant with him. And you have done what you promised, for you were always true to your word. You saw the misery of our ancestors when they were slaves in Egypt. You heard their cries. You displayed miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You delivered them. You divided the sea for your people so they could walk through dry land. You led our ancestors when they were in the desert by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. You came down at Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them the law. You instructed them concerning the Sabbath and all these things. You, you gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry, water from the rock when they were thirsty. thirsty. So, so it goes on and says, God, you did this. God, you did this. God, you did this. And then it says, but, but our ancestors were proud and stubborn and they paid no attention to your commands. 
They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles he had done, done for them. So they became stubborn. It says, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. And even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, they committed terrible blasphemy. So, so they started worshiping this thing that they had made. And then it says, but God, in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not stop giving them manna from heaven for the water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them. You helped them conquer kingdoms and nations. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. But despite all of these things that, God, that you've done, they were disobedient rebelled against you. They turned their backs on the law. They killed your prophets. They turned away from you. But as soon as they were at peace, and then God, you, you redeemed them again. But as soon as they were at peace, your people again committed evil in your sight. Again, they, they turned away from you. They did not follow your regulations. You sent your spirit who warned them through the prophets, but they wouldn't listen. But in your great mercy, you did not destroy them. And, and it goes on and on through Nehemiah chapter 9. God, you did this. God, you're like this. God, you're merciful. God, you're faithful. God, you sustained us. But we forget that. We turned away from you. We worshiped idols. We put other things before you. And then you redeemed us. And then we came back. And then we turned away. And then we came back. And then we turned away. And you see this over and over again in Nehemiah 9. And then in Nehemiah 9.38, the people responded, in view of all of this, in view of how, when I look at, when we look at the story of our people, when we look at the story of our heart, we recognize that we're prone to wander. That we're prone to leave the God I love. That we're prone to put other things first. In view of all of this, we are going to take a promise. We are going to covenant together. You see, if you have Nehemiah 10 without Nehemiah 9, you just have religious legalism. So when I talk about giving, when I talk about generosity, when I talk about the tithe, if it, if it actually doesn't come from an understanding of the heart, it just turns into legalism. What Nehemiah, what Nehemiah 9 is addressing is idolatry. And idolatry is when we take something and we make it an ultimate thing. It's those things that we say, if I only had this, then my life would be better or complete. Or it's when we say, I don't know what I would do with my life if I didn't have this. But we know that God says, I am the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. Your life begins with God. Your life ends with God. And there's nothing else that can actually make your life that's worth your life beginning on or fearing that your life is going to end without because God is the beginning and the end. And so idolatry is actually identifying those things that we say that we've taken. Uh, it can even be a good thing. It can be a re good relationship. It can be, it can be money. It can be material things. But we've elevated it to an ultimate thing. And when those things become threatened, we start to get angry. 
And anger is the smoke detector of the heart. I heard somebody say this this past week. I love that. Anger is the smoke detector of the heart. And so the reason I started with Nehemiah 10 this morning instead of Nehemiah 9 is because I wanted, I wanted you to search your heart. And I would ask you, when I talked about money, when I talked about tithing, when I talked about stuff, uh, was there anything in you that stood up? Anything in you that caused offense? That made you feel anger? Because it's actually not about a tithe. It's not about Nehemiah 10, it's actually about Nehemiah 9. The Bible reference has, has 500 references to prayer, about 500 to faith, but about 2,000 to money and possessions. More references to money and possessions than any, any references to heaven or hell. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels of in the Gospels, the first four chapters of the New Testament about the life and teachings of Jesus, one of every ten verses is a verse about money or possessions. Half of Jesus' stories, half his parables were actually about money and possessions. Why? Luke 12, 15 says this. says, watch out for greed. Why do we need to, and he specifically talks about greed. Why do we need to talk about, why, why do we need to watch out for greed specifically? It's because it's the sin that's the hardest to notice. How many of you think you're too rich this morning? Anybody? Put up your hand if you think you're too rich. Honestly, how many of you think you're too poor? Like you could use a little, you could just use a little bit more. Let's get some, on, let's get some honest people this morning. You could use a little bit more. Anybody feel like they could use a little bit more cash? A little bit more stuff? My guess is that we could all put up our hands. Many of you are. Why? Because we don't notice greed. That's why Luke specifically says you have to watch out for greed. It's, it's a little bit different than like adultery. You know, you, you, don't, you don't wake up and be like, oh, I didn't know I was committing adultery. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen. You know, we don't have to be told watch out for stealing. Like, like it's going to sneak up on you. Like, oh, how did I get this? I stole it. Like it's, it's obvious that... But Luke says, watch out for greed. Why? Because it's the one sin that you will never recognize unless you're willing to look at your own heart. See, God has always been about calling us to love God and love people. Jesus summarizes the whole teaching of the Old Testament as love God, love people. And our money and our possessions is a tool that we use to love God and love people. But if our goal is, if we actually love money, if we take this, this something and make it an ultimate thing, if we love money, we end up using people and God as a tool. Let me say that again. God wants us to love God and love people, and our money and our possessions is actually intended to be a tool to that end. But if our hearts and our love is actually towards money and possessions, we end up using people, and we end up using God himself uh, as a tool to get what we want. And if we love money, we use people. And so Matthew 6.19 
says this, don't store up treasure here on earth where moths and where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal, store up your treasure in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light to your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light, if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep is that darkness? That darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So as the worship team comes up, I want to make just a couple of observations on this uh, very direct teaching of Jesus. Don't store up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Don't be a hoarder. And I was thinking about this idea of even hoarding uh, this week. Uh, if You could look at a hoarder and say, man, they're rich. Look at all the stuff they have. But I think we would recognize that a hoarder isn't rich. They're actually poor in spirit. There's actually a spirit of poverty. This, this fear that they, they, they believe they, they can't let go of anything uh, because are they going to be okay? Are they going to be safe? Or what's going to happen if they don't have that stuff? And that's actually a spirit of poverty, not a spirit of generosity. Jesus invites us to focus on eternity, not on what we see in the present. Uh, and it's funny, Jesus even taps into a little bit of our selfishness in this teaching. He's not even just saying, be generous because it's good for other people. He's saying, be generous because it's actually good for you. It's in your, it's in your best interest. If you want treasures in heaven, uh, then that actually should be your priority, which means we become generous with our resources here on earth. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Money is the mirror to your heart. The place, uh, Eugene Peterson says this way, the place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Jesus does this teaching on the eye. He says, if your eye is good, and, and that word good is actually, the connotations are more around singleness. If, you're, if your eye is undivided, you'll be filled with light. If your eye is bad, and the idea behind that is, is, is actually double-sided, you, you can't look in two directions at the same time. I tried. Look at this wall and look at that. Can you do it? It's like when, when I'm driving my car and my kids say, Dad, look at this. Turn around, look at this. And they want, got something they want to show me, and I keep saying, I can't. I, I'm, I'm driving. You know, I'm on the deer foot, and they want me to look at what they're doing. And I said, well, you got two choices. I can either look at you and we crash, um, or I can look at the road and look at you later. Uh, because I can't look at two things at the same time. And what Jesus is saying here is, if your eyes are good, and he's relating this to generosity, to treasure, if, if, you're, if your eyes are, if you're single-sighted, if you're seeking first the kingdom of heaven, then you're going to be full of light. If you're double-sided, if you're trying to focus on two things at once, you actually 
Uh, your eyes will be bad. You'll be full of darkness. And, and that's, that's why it makes sense when Jesus concludes by saying, no one can serve two masters for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. It's impossible to actually serve two masters. So who is your master? Who is your master? And, and I would say follow, this is a scary exercise, but follow the money and see where it leads. Follow the money and see where it leads. Look at your banking, your check, your checkbook. Your, do people do checkbooks anymore? Um, look at where your money is going, and it'll tell you something about your heart. So when I, when I used to teach uh, in... Uh, when I was a youth pastor and I would teach high, sc- high school kids and we do once a year we would talk about uh, sexuality and talk about relationships and we, do, we would do an answer, a, a question box where the kids could put in any question they want into the question box. And every year, uh, without fail, uh, the, the question that was asked uh, by you know, 10 or 12 students is, how far is too far? You know, physically in a relationship. Can, can, you know, Matt, can you help us understand how far is too far? At what, at what point am I actually sinning? Uh, and at what point am I still okay? And I would answer that question every year and I would say it's actually the wrong question. Because that question is actually an indication of where your heart is. You're, you're, you're wondering how close you can actually get to the edge and still be okay. Versus, if your heart's desire is to love God and seek first his kingdom, what is the most honoring way to live in light of your love for God? How do you honor God and honor the other person in that relationship? It's a radically different question than how far is too far? Which is often what I hear when people say, well, how much do I have to give to the church? And as I expressed a little bit earlier, 10% is a good, it's a good guideline. But if, if the point is actually 10%, if you only give because I got up here and told you to give and said you should give, then I'm going to tell you this morning, don't give. Because it actually has nothing to do with the 10%. It has nothing to do with, with how, what am I supposed to do to be okay with God? Because God doesn't need your money. Sun West doesn't need your money. Well, maybe if you look at your bulletin, we do need a bit of money. Um, but... It actually has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with your heart. My, my heart this morning for us is, is not, I do not care whether you give your money or not, actually. As a pastor, my concern this morning is our heart as a community. And I, and I look at, at our giving and what's, what's happened. I said, what's happening in the hearts of our people? Yeah, we could look at it in, with Nehemiah 10 and say, what's, what's the law? You know, what are we committing to? What are we supposed to do? 
Um, but Nehemiah 10 without Nehemiah 9 just turns into religious legalism. And so I'd rather focus on Nehemiah 9 and say, where does the money lead? Who's your master? Do you trust God? Are you, are you, are you living in a spirit of poverty that thinks I actually can't be generous because I got to keep my stuff? I'll give God leftovers, but that's far different than giving God first fruits and giving God your best. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come lead us in a final song. Second Corinthians 9 verse 7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I found online this tips, tips for handling a hoarder from a former hoarder. Okay? And this is what she writes. She says, Crack, Cracker crumbs found under a pillow, moldy... F- oh, I just lost it. Cracker crumbs under a pillow, moldy food rotting under the bed, a stash of food hidden in a backpack, a child who sits at a table and eats and eats and eats until you're afraid their stomach can't handle no more. Sound familiar? Do you blame yourself? Do you hear your mother's voice in your head telling you not to waste food? Are you tempted to put a lock on the refrigerator door? She says, please don't. Don't lock the child out of the bedroom or put locks on the kitchen cabinets. Don't yell, threaten, punish her. Sorry, we're threatened. Don't try to shame a child or make them feel guilty for what they are doing. Food hoarding behaviors will not diminish under the threat of consequence. Generosity does not come from the law. Generosity does not come from Nehemiah 10. Children communicate needs through behavior. On a deeper level, this issue is not about food. It's not about money. It's not about stuff, but about control. The child is not yet ready to trust the adult in his or her life to provide a secure and safe environment. I'd say as, um, in parallel, are we ready to actually trust God that God can provide for us if we put him in his kingdom first? That trust can't be won over by threats, punishments, or shaming behaviors. This behavior does not come out of a vacuum. Rather, it is an adaptive response to deprivation. It often stems from years of food insecurity. This behavior is telling you a story. Once upon a time, my biological parents traded food stamps for drugs and I didn't have enough to eat. Once there was a time when I lived on the streets and had to beg for food from strangers. When my younger brothers and sisters were hungry, it was up to me to feed them. In the orphanage, I had, I had to fight for food, etc., etc. You know, what she's saying is you actually can't change the heart of a hoarder by legalism or by threats or by guilting. And so if you, hear, if you feel any condemnation or guilt this morning, just shake that off because that's not actually what I'm saying at all. The, the person who is storing up treasures on earth, uh, it's, it's an indication of their heart. And this is actually the one area in Scripture that God tells you to test him in. Test him. See that God is faithful and that he provides for you. Now, I'm not one that um, would teach any type of formula. You know, if you give God this, then he's going to do this, and it's uh, going to result in material blessing. But I believe that when we take steps of generosity, steps of sacrificial giving, that God usually surprises you with a blessing 
to show you that he's trustworthy. You know, I remember a few years ago when we realized we weren't actually tithing as much as we should be, we changed, we changed it and we, we, um, so we increased our amount. And within that week, I actually got a Costco gift card in the mail for the exact amount that we changed our, um, our tithe for. So, so I didn't walk away from that being like, oh, I'm just going to keep giving and God's going to match that. Like I didn't get Costco cards from then on out. Um, but God did something in that moment that said, I'm trustworthy. You know, this, this past year, uh, I felt like I needed to get a different vehicle for a number of reasons, and, uh, uh, but we didn't have the ability to do that. We weren't going to go into debt to do that. Uh, and uh, I got an anonymous check in the mail one week, uh, just mind-blowing. And uh, the next week, I was on a bike ride, and uh, I was biking with Rod. Uh, Rod, he, he can give a wave over there. Um, and... Uh, and Rod's like, he says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to get a new car this afternoon after we bike ride. I said, oh, you're, what are you doing with your old car? He's like, well, I'm trading it in. Uh, and he's like, it's weird. I, I felt like a few months ago that God was telling me that I should ask you if you wanted my car, uh, but for some reason I didn't act on it. Uh, and I said, well, just curious how much, you know, what, what's the trade-in value you're getting for your car? And the trade-in value, he told me, was the exact amount of the check that I got the week before. Exactly. And I said, if you'll sell, I'll, buy it, I'll buy it from you right now. I got the money. Um, and then so they canceled the trade-in and allowed me to purchase it off them, which was great. Uh, but I don't, I don't assume that that's just what happens all the time. But, but God does enough things in my life that says, when I step out in generosity, he's actually faithful uh, and will show himself that he's trustworthy. And so I would encourage you to take a risk. I would encourage you, if, you're, if your heart felt challenged this morning, to say, I'm actually going to not give God my leftovers. I'm going to move him to a higher priority. I'm going to take a risk in my tithing, my generosity, and see what happens. I think you'll be encouraged. So let me pray for you, and then we'll worship to close. God, we thank you uh, that you are faithful. We thank you that you are generous with us, and that our generosity is actually just a response to your generosity. And thank you, God, that you didn't tithe with us, that you didn't just hold back with us and only give us 10% of yourself. You gave us your full self. You put your full self on the cross. And so, God, would your generosity transform our hearts? Would we grow in our faith? Would we grow in our ability to trust you? Lord, would you loosen our grip on our possessions and our money because, God, we know that it's ultimately not about possessions and money, but it's all about our heart. And, God, we want to give you our hearts. And so we, this morning, we just, as a community, say we're giving you our hearts. And we realize there's ripple effects in that with our money and, and finances and possessions. Uh, but it's not about that. God is about our hearts, and uh, you are Lord of our hearts. I thank you that you're a good father who knows how to take care of his kids, Lord, and we rest in that. And thank you for your patience and grace as we learn to rest in that. In Jesus' name, amen.